Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to Life Out Loud, a new literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your co-hosts today. And I'm Maoli, back again from our first episode. And I'm Samantha, also back from the first episode. Thanks for joining us for episode four, En Route, an episode dedicated to the theme of travel in honor of our recent spring break here at John Jay. In the stories we'll hear tonight, student writers share bold and intimate travel experiences with us. And it's worth noting, too, that all three of these pieces were selected for public readings at Travelogue, a New York City-based travel writing and reading series hosted by the International Service Arts Organization, Dramatic Adventure Theatre. These readings are held at both the Cornelia Street Cafe and at New World Stages and have featured some pretty amazing writers over the years. That's right. Our writers tonight are in good company. This reading series has featured several well-known nonfiction writers such as Erica Anderson, Salon, Vanity Fair, New York Times, and Katie Helper, MSNBC, Jezebel, New York Times, LA Times, Comedy Central, among others, including local professors. Yes, so thank you to our writers for being with us tonight. And let's start with our first piece entitled Pura Vida by Karina Velez. Karina wants to live in a world filled with innovative thinkers, books that come bundled with green tea and cures for procrastination, as an aspiring forensic psychologist currently studying at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, she plans to graduate this fall without spontaneously combusting, after which she will attend Harvard University for her MA in clinical psychology. When she's not studying or writing feedback letters for her creative nonfiction class, you can find her hidden behind her camera, lovingly named Bartholomew, organizing her next big adventure, or drawing floor plans for tiny houses. Thank you, Karen. Let's listen to Pura Vida. Holy fucking shit, I shout to Jessica, stepping onto the terrace of our well-air-conditioned casita. It is beyond hot as balls out here, babe. My hair's already starting to curl. Although the clock has yet to strike 9 a.m., I can see the thermometer has reached full mass. From the veranda, I notice the rest of the guests at the resort heading out on their day of relaxation. I, too, am prepared to submerge myself in the easygoing rhythms of pura vida. But this heat, though... The sun is beating down and I feel no wind, just moisture in the air while we walk to breakfast. With every passing second, I can feel my hair curling and lifting, lifting and curling. The frizz. I feel it beginning to set in and I think about how much I dislike the heat, but mostly how much I detest my hair. For most, the hardest part of traveling is the food or the sunburn or the struggle to hide from a mosquito stealthy ninja attack. Not me. The greatest battle for me is what to do with this mop on my head that which, in humidity, quickly resembles a steaming pot of ramen noodles. It's not cute. Growing up, this was my biggest insecurity. What took most of the girls in my class seconds took me hours. Three, to be exact. Three hours set aside to look like the rest of them. The white girls in my class. 
180 minutes to get these wild ringlets to behave and resemble the straight hair that so calmly rested on their heads. The process was always the same. 10 minutes to wash, 20 to detangle, 15 to put in rollers, 80 to sit under the scorching hot hair dryer, another 10 to remove the rollers and the pins that held them in place, and lastly, 45 to blow it out straight. Anytime mom and I didn't take the time to tame this thing, I was guaranteed to come home from school in tears. I had black girl hair, they'd say. At the time, this was the biggest insult anyone could receive, which is still unclear to me. I don't have nappy hair, I would think. I have curls. Somewhere. But in the predominantly white academy I attended, curls and nappy hair were one and the same. I think about my German-Rican, German and Dominican, mixed mother's perfect silk hair and how she would tell me to be proud of my mane, as it is a representation of your heritage. It was while she would do my hair each morning before school that we would practice our Spanish. She would say, Destiny, usted sabe que es muy importante aprender español, as she forcibly entangled the dry spirals that protruded from my scalp. It's important that I learn Spanish. I know, I know, Mom. The following attempt to constrict my locks with two hair ties at once always failed. And as the tally of broken hair ties increased, my anger would grow deeper and deeper from my heritage, from my hair, which spoke Spanish for me. So on the walk to breakfast, a pair of cotai, the Spanish cousins to the raccoon, run past us, and I suspect that they are also in search of a morning meal. Like us, these white-nosed mammals took the long and least populated way. In the end... I applaud Jessica's choice to walk down the narrow stone path rather than the main road. I am certain that after five minutes in this heat, I resemble Cousin It from the Adams Family. The fewer people who have to witness this, the better. I humorously decide that this is the real reason why the Kotai ran past us. As we approach the Mira restaurant, I frantically make one last attempt to contain what is now a thick, textured, frizzy mess matted to my scalp. And sure enough, just as we approach the hostess, right in front of her, my hair tie snaps, just as it always had. I panic and immediately observe the young Latina woman before me, who pretends she didn't notice. Pura vida, ladies. Just two. Please, follow me. She greets us with a smile. The pura vida greeting and farewell is the prideful Costa Rican mantra used often for its simple yet profound encouragement that people relax and enjoy their time. But I cannot. I cannot enjoy my time. I cannot relax, especially when I follow the trail of her eyes as they move between the broken elastic in my hand to the top of my nappy head. I know what she's thinking, how ugly she thinks my hair is. She looks back and forth once more, and I do my best to force a smile. But I am livid at my ancestors for cursing me. In the short time it takes the server to bring us coffee, I've played the hostess situation over and over again in my head more than once, and I'm filling even further with embarrassment. Just like on those days at school. Those days I tried so hard to look presentable. To look contained. To look pretty. Like them. Jessica attempts to console me twice by calling me beautiful more times than I deserve. But just before I'm able to tell her that she cannot understand, because she's a different kind of Spanish than I am, she'll never know what it is to be a mutt, to be... But before I'm even able to finish that thought, 
I feel someone's hand on my shoulder. <laughs> it's the hostess. And she smiles gently as she hands me two of her own hair ties and begins to explain in Spanish that she has the same problem. Her hair breaks elastics too, she says. I thank her in the native language my ancestors spoke, the same language that my mother and I would practice in the bathroom every morning. And it is here, in Costa Rica, in this moment, that I am thankful for my Spanish-speaking hair and the gift of conversation it has granted me. That was such a cool piece about the curly, curly hair that Karina is currently rocking for us tonight. So thank you so much for sharing, Karina, and thank you for being here to talk more about this piece that is so bomb about mm. Costa Rica and about Jesse and about the hardships that come with being a Latina. Thank you very much, you guys, for having me. I've hosted before, but it's completely different sitting on the other side of the table. So I'm excited for this. So your piece is so interesting because there's so many levels to it. So let's just jump right in. Um, you mentioned that your mother is German and Dominican. So if mm -hmm. you don't mind me asking, what's your, your father's ethnicity? Um, I'm just curious because I'm sure a lot of listeners are dying to know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, my dad is actually pure Puerto Rican, like 100% Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so it makes for it made for an interesting person standing before you as well as uh, an interesting family dynamic it's a really cool mixed um, Puerto Rican Dominican German that's very um really cool um so it's interesting here uh, in your piece I noticed that you mentioned the words Spanish speaking and Spanish many times throughout the piece you even say she's a different kind of Spanish than I am and it caught my attention that you never mentioned the word African uh, after the genocide of the Taino indigenous people in present-day Dominican Republic and Haiti, the Spanish colonists running the transatlantic slave trade made Santo Domingo one of the first destinations for, for enslaved Africans, making the Dominican Republic one of the biggest recipients of African slaves in the Caribbean. Although few Dominicans self-identify as black, more than 90% of Dominicans trace their roots back to Africa. So the question um, for you is the following. Was not mentioning Africa done intentionally here in your piece? Uh, do you consider yourself an Afro-descendant or is this something with which you do not entirely identify? I think that is really interesting that you ask me this. Um, it's n not mentioned intentionally um, throughout my entire life. It's something that we don't, um, and when I say we, I, I predominantly speaking of my um, mother's side of the family, who's Dominican and um, <clears throat> came over fresh off the boat from there. Um, we don't talk about that. We don't, um, we consider ourselves, although we share the island of Spaniola with Haiti, um, we don't at all consider ourselves uh, African, which is something that I personally have a problem with after, um, you know, questioning it and here in college um because it just wasn't spoken about i remember uh when i was younger going to my mom um because I, I used to spend a lot of summers in dr and um you know asking like why uh 
why my skin is darker like why does my skin get so dark or like you know um when um we would have some haitians that live down the street from us um you know they were seen as the bad and the like not good people and i never fully understood why and my mom would always say oh they've done bad things to our people and it wasn't until you know i came to john jay and um i exposed myself to various race courses and uh, really learned about not just my culture, but the culture of others, that I was truly able to understand that, you know, we're descendants from them, <laughs> like we're descendants from from slaves that, you know, we have this idea of um, we're Spanish and like this is like, um, you know, we glorify these Spanish colonists as like the people who came and made our country, um, but we tend to neglect uh, this idea of, um, you know, African slaves, you know, are our ancestors. They are what we what we're made of today. Um, and so, I, which I think is interesting when no one, like even now I just said, you know, like my dad is 100%. Like no one's 100% anything at the end of the day. We're all mixed. Um, so it, it's just, it was really interesting um, for you to ask me that. Um, and... Going into whether or not I consider myself an Afro descendant, um, I I would have to say that I almost never did. Um, I almost never did until I started traveling um, as an adult, and it was when I started traveling as an adult and I got to experience other people's cultures outside of the classroom that I was really able to learn, and I think that that's the biggest key and that's the reason why we travel and the reason why um we expose ourselves to so much um it's to learn and it's to understand other people and to understand ourselves through that thank you that's really <laughs> a good point and i really love that you mentioned the uh haitian dominican issue uh because i think it's really important as a also a dominican woman myself uh, I do consider myself Afro-descendant mm -hmm. and understanding um, my, my culture and having lived in the Dominican Republic until I was nine years old and then mm -hmm. immigrating here to the United States. I completely agree with you. Um, there is a glorification of European culture mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic, mm -hmm. so much so that uh, we celebrate as a country the uh, our independence from Haiti instead of independence from exactly. Europeans when we were colonized by Europeans for 300 mm -hmm. years uh, and we had a conflict with Haiti for 20 some 22 years exactly right so that's very interesting that you mentioned that and I'm really glad that you did mm -hmm. this is really important I think that it's really interesting um you know just going back on on that comment about like us glorifying um you know colonialists uh if you go through our country if you go through the dr you see nothing but monuments dedicated to these individuals that suppressed us for so long um so i think that it, that's that's fascinating as well and also the idea i mean you know um <laughs> when and when i say you know it's because you, you're from there um that we don't like consider ourselves um you know like uh, moreno or we don't consider ourselves like these uh, color classifications. I, I mean, a lot of my family, um, they've either were always like, oh, yeah, we identify more as European. Like if people ask you, like, it's a little bit more that because your skin color is Indio. And like that's that's a thing. The fact that that's a thing. 
I don't know. I was just, no, I thought it was you're, interesting. You're right on target. And one thing that I want to emphasize and touch upon, uh, adding to what you just said, is that you can be dark as the darkest, you know, beautiful complexion mm-hmm. uh, as a Dominican person. And you will, the, the, the 99% of the time, you will not identify as black. We have, mm. we have hundreds of words to, um, to kind of identify our skin color. Indigo, trigueño, eh, jebao, jabao. Mm-hmm. But you, you, you never say negro. No. And it's, it, it, it goes back to, to, the, uh, to, to ide- idealizing mm-hmm. European um, culture. And we even have one thing that impacted me um, when I started learning about my culture, I don't know if you know, is that there is, as you mentioned, um, there is actually a statue of Columbus. Yeah. In the Dominican Republic. And mm-hmm. it's so crazy because he landed in the Dominican Republic. That was the first place in America where he landed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But he landed to establish a slave trade. Exactly. And the Dominican Republic is the first place where the, the genocide of the Taino mm-hmm. indigenous population was actually achieved. It's just crazy to me that we're actually glorifying these people. And we don't stop to think about the fact that and this is actually something I learned this semester was that Haiti was actually one of the first um, countries to, or I mean, even even lands, if you will, um, to gain freedom for slaves to gain freedom from um, colonists. Right. And I've I've never knew that. I never knew that my island, because that's what I consider it now. I consider it my island. It's no longer my country, DR. No, we share an island. And my island did that. Our island did that. Right. Yes. Haiti, Haiti was, in fact, the first black Latin American republic to achieve liberation from colonial oppression in the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So Haiti is huge um, in terms of. Without the Haitian liberation, there would be no Latin American liberation. Exactly. We know that. We know that. And the fact that we separate ourselves from Haiti, it's an issue that it's um, deeply rooted in, in our history, mm-hmm. in our internalized oppression, uh, and wanting to deviate from our African roots as well. Because Haiti does identify very strongly as a black country. Yeah. And it's kind of like us versus them. When in reality, the Dominican Republic and Haiti we're we're sisters and brothers we can't we we're africans Mm -hmm. that's that's who we are and i feel i don't know if you feel the same way but um or how how often you travel to the dominican republic but the music the food everything about the dominican republic screams africa the tambores the bachata the merengue the perico ripiao it's all african (laughs) rhythms you know what i'm saying like you can't hide it no matter how much you, how much you how try, much you try. Or how much you try to change the name or add an accent to it it doesn't change the fact that even the way it we ar- speak yeah. <laughs> precisely yeah uh, the way we speak spanish it's so different from any other spanish spoken in other countries yeah and and, and it's there's a reason for that when when the slaves were brought into the into the island and they tried to learn Spanish, they had their own language, mm-hmm. right? So they when they tried to learn Spanish, they had a specific way, they had a specific accent, mm-hmm. and that's and and that's what we have now. We speak very fast. We cut certain words. We even have different words. Um, you know, of course, throughout Latin America, we're very diverse ethically mm-hmm. and culturally, um, but. The, the, specifically talking about Dominicans and even Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans have 
vast African roots as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, we have, you, you cannot erase the African heritage, no yeah. matter how hard you try. No matter how much you yeah. try. <laughs> our African roots are even embedded in our hair. But anyway, back to the story, you also talk about hair, of course. Um, Afro-texture hair or curly hair is a political topic for Latin Americans. And of course, there is a complex history of hundreds of years of colonization that has led to internalized oppression and idealization of European features as more beautiful than non-European features making some people think of straight hair as good hair and after textured hair as bad hair. But of course, we know that hair can either be good or bad because, of course, hair cannot commit crimes. <laughs> as you may know, good hair and bad hair are actually terms used in the Dominican Republic to describe straight and curly hair. Mm-hmm. And um, internalization of oppression can sometimes come from people who are close to us for many years. And you mentioned that your mother actually encouraged you to love your hair. Mm. But did other family members comment on your hair at all? And I would also love to know what made you feel like the other people at your school did not like your hair? Mm. Well, um, growing up, I guess, as uh, for me as a female, um, you come to learn that everyone has an opinion about everything that you do. Um, and most importantly, your hair is definitely one of them. Uh, in this particular piece, I show my mother um, in the light that she really did try to encourage me to love my hair. But at the same time, too, um, looking back now, she was just as much as an advocate for me as well as someone who was like, Destiny, you need to go and like fix your hair. You need to go and, you know, like your hair looks, it looks bad. You need to like tie that up or you have that bad hair. Um, And she did her best to try and help me to press my curls. Um, you know, when I was younger, um, I had this doll. Um, it was Samantha. It was like a Samantha American Girl doll. And I loved her. And she had the straightest hair. And she was the only one who had a little bit of an olive, like more of an olive complexion. And she was the only American Girl doll that looked like me. And it was because of that doll. And I would come to learn later on this idea that hair needs to be beautiful at all times or it needs to be controlled it needs to um you know just be long and 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 do its thing Mm -hmm. without you know being wild um that I would really go to my mom at one point um and tell her that I wanted to to get straight hair and my mom being the loving mom that she is she took me uh to the hair salon and we went and we got Uh, relaxer done to my hair which is like one of the worst things that you can do Um, and I did it from I think it was like age uh, eight all the way up until 18 really Um, and it was terrible for my hair so I never really learned how to take care of it Mm -hmm. Um, and you know along with family and sleeping over other families houses and stuff like that like Everyone had something to say about my thick hair Um, and whether it was, oh, wow, it's so beautiful. And then looking at it and being like, oh, but that hair, it seems like it's a lot. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's a lot to manage. Um, My Puerto Rican side of the family, they would often be like, oh, that's your Dominican hair. Like really? that's yeah, they're like, I get to tiene ese pelo dominicana, eso porque se parece así, um, which mainly is, you know, that's that Dominican hair. That's why it looks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I I grew I grew up 
understanding that that's what it was. It was my Dominican culture. And for a long time, I completely turned myself away from that Dominican culture because of it, because it came with this underlying um, tone and sense of, of bad, mm-hmm. of negativity. Mm-hmm. And that's what my hair was. It was just a huge, massive mess of negativity <laughs> that followed me everywhere. And so I would straighten it as much as I could. Um, and I guess as far as uh, school... I mean, I went to Catholic school for most of my life um, where the uniforms were the same and we all looked the same aside from whatever hairstyles we wore. And uh, where some girls were able to wear really pretty like French braids without a single hair out or loose. Um, You know, mine was real nice for the first two hours. (laughs) And then as the day like continued, it would just slowly little hairs would come out and um you know, my baby hairs in the back would always stick up if I wore a ponytail. So I would have to go the extra mile, you know, the extra three hours, like I mentioned in the piece, and really work at my hair so it could kind of look like that. But it it never really did. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think it's very common for Dominican mothers to say, fix your hair. Mm-hmm. But what they really mean is straightening your hair. Yeah. yeah. And La- Latina mothers as well. Yeah. Because segueing off of that, I am Latina. I'm not Dominican. I'm Salvadorian. Mm. But a lot of the time, like, there is this push to when it's a fancy occasion, when it's something, you know, big or special, you straighten your hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's yes. what happens. And if your hair is straightened, like, I have very big lion-esque hair. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't quite as, like, Afro-influenced as you guys. Well, as, as Karina specifically in this piece. But it is very big. And sometimes <laughs> if it is like a special occasion, you know, like a sweet 16, like a quince or something, my mom would be like, don't you want to straighten it? Don't you want to go get your hair yes, done? Yes, don't you want right? to go get your hair done? Yes, exactly. always. And why is it that getting your hair done and the classy way to look and the way to look completely is fresh? Is fucking peeing. <laughs> um, but I completely understand in the sense that why is it that our her hair is straight? has to be what's classy Mm, why is it that that's what it has it should Mm. look like or even i mean if you want to fast forward to us now um as adults why is it that we straighten our hair but then we take the curling iron and just kind of do those those curls that are mass produced those mass produced curls why can't we wear our natural hair yeah beautiful and curly as it is yeah. um, to these events, to yeah. these occasions where we're supposed to look beautiful and mm-hmm. elegant. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Well, I think your current hair is beautiful and elegant. Thank <laughs> you very yeah. much. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> One part of this is like our mothers and our family wanting us to look good because it's what's expected, but also to kind of shield us in a way because the rest of the world sees this as well the rest of the world is just as almost brainwashed in a sense to love eurocentric features as well and an example of this is when you say i was guaranteed to come home from school in tears i had black girl hair they'd say at the time this was the biggest insult anyone could receive which is still unclear to me so firstly uh, tell us what school you went to was it a school in the u.s and and what city? I ask because I can't imagine this being like in a school in New York City where the majority of people are exposed to so many different like ethnicities and cultures. Mm. Um, it gets a little tangled, you know, when incomes increase. But for the majority, the city is very diverse. So tell us a little bit about this experience at school. Well, in this particular piece, um, 
I don't necessarily mention an age, but um, I moved around schools a lot. But a lot of my schooling was done in private schools. And um, the particular moments that I think of when I started writing this piece was when I lived in northern New Jersey. And I went to a private Catholic school that, like I said, all the girls wore the same um, uniforms. And our hair was our only way to identify ourselves. Um, And a lot of the uh, individuals up there they were all uh, white or of Caucasian um, backgrounds, if you will. Um, So it was only me and two or three other girls in the entire school that were either Spanish or of representing a minority through there. Um, It was tough. You know, it was one of those things where school children are mean. I don't know who said kids are nice because they're not. Um, But children are truthful and they say what comes to their mind first off. And so, um, that was, yeah, that was a little bit tough. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I guess because kids do pick up on certain things, especially when things are bad, because children are learning basically what is bad as they grow up. So they see their family and they see the public and they see them all view certain hair, black girl hair, as something that's bad. Mm-hmm. So they hear that, they internalize that, and then they just spit it out. Exactly. Any hair that doesn't look like theirs, that doesn't... Yeah stay straight and um you know doesn't take on a life of its own midway through the day um is essentially seen as different and for whatever reason different is bad um but focusing more on i guess my experience you know a lot of the girls there they were just they were you know they just weren't used to it they weren't used to me um a spanish girl who initially grew up in new york and then went out there and um had to sort of make your own way and it's not enough to be smart in this world it's not enough to um you know be opinionated you have to be pretty too and that's just when you're a woman woman. exactly (laughs) when you're you took the words right out of my mouth when you're female it's just it's just so much harder you have to be everything at once Mm -hmm. you can't just be a jock exactly you know so but you're saying you're saying um pretty right but Yet we're talking about a different texture hair, right? And mm-hmm. what other people define as pretty. So it's, it, it, I feel like it's very objective. Mm-hmm. Like if if these people are thinking that your hair is not beautiful because it's different, but your hair is very beautiful um, to me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, I was waiting for me it's to be cool. like, thank yeah. you. No, I think you ladies um, in front of me, even Sam over here has been pretty quiet. Um, all of you have gorgeous hair. And I think at the end of the day, even people who, what is bad hair? What's ugly hair? I don't think I don't, it exists I mean, necessarily. I don't know. Yeah, I, I personally have never seen bad hair. I see hair that d- misbehaves. <laughs> I mean, I see hair that doesn't do what I want it to do. I mean, my hair and I, we still have a working relationship, but that doesn't necessarily mean that You're like, in it's bad. Exactly. But you got to take pride in that, even in yeah, the struggle yeah. of you know tying your hair because that's your that's your heritage mm-hmm. that's something that other people may not have that other people may not understand but that's part of you part of your history totally. part of who you are reminding you every day exactly. of your heritage and you should be proud of that exactly and i couldn't agree with you more as an adult but as a child it was or even as a youth it was difficult because you know i remember there were days where i walked into school and I had girls, you know, first period who are like, 
wow, you look like a wet dog. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, shit. Or, yeah, they're like, you kind of look like a wet dog. Like, right. but not like a puppy, like a dog. Mm-mm. And like, and it was just because my hair. Have I you ever gotten like poodle-ish? So, you know, mm. I didn't because I had my hair in relaxer. So instead of mm. being vibe, like, you know, um, lively, uh, my hair just kind of drooped down. So oh. in, in essence, I... Everything I did to try and make myself more pretty, more beautiful, actually <laughs> it made it worse. You. It worked 100% against <laughs> Interesting. me. And it just goes to speak about, like, if anything, this is a lesson um, yes. to take away that to just, you know, accept what you have and, like, try not to keep changing it or try to make it something it's not. Because when you try to make it something it's not, it's not anything. It's not what you want it to be and it's not um, what it's not trying to be. Do you feel though that it has take it has been a late, uh, learning process um, for you, like like you've had to kind of figure it out, like your heritage. Okay, like I should be proud of this. This is why I should be proud of this, as opposed to like this is what I have. This is the kind of hair I have now. I have to love it. Do you feel like there there has been a learning process in your acceptance of your hair and your like maybe liking your hair now? It- And actually, go ahead, Karen. Really quickly, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. There was like this for me specifically to to kind of piggyback off of that. There was like a moment where when I when I was in the process of like getting my hair to look a certain way, look less Latina. When I looked at my dresser and I saw all these hair products mm. and I saw how expensive they were, and I was like, "This is insane!" The fact that I was spending two hours every single morning getting up at like yeah. four in the morning for school to do my hair. Because I didn't like how Latina it was. Exactly. So was there that kind of defining moment for you where you just kind of learned that this is fucking stupid? Like, <laughs> where, where that kind of sparked you to kind of love what your hair actually was naturally? Well, I'm actually always going through these um, these sort of series of events when it comes to my hair. And I think that a lot of women are either whether it's changing your hair color, which you guys, you need to check out our Instagram because <laughs> Karen over here just changed her hair, y'all. It looks really good, girl. I look like a lion. <laughs> it looks beautiful. <laughs> But I mean, at all of us, we're, you know, we have these all these options in front of us. And um, I think I got to a point recently um, also, too, because I'm preparing to travel. And this is another thing I mentioned in my piece that. One of the most difficult things about traveling and traveling as a female is that you have these um, social norms to try and be beautiful and to try and look good while you travel. And, you know, we have to carry a thousand products with us in order to do that. Um, I just got to a point that I'm like, you know, I need to start wearing my hair more curly. I go through the winter, especially these um, long months where I'm just constantly straightening my hair, straightening my hair, straightening my hair. And it actually does more damage to your hair to straighten it, to try and constrict these curls, to try and, you know, take away what makes you you. Um, and I'm just, I don't know. I'm uh, Like right now I'm at this moment where obviously you all see my curly, curly hair. Um, that I'm just trying to embrace it. I'm trying to just let it be and stop fighting against it. And I hope that... Um, you know, by going more natural, um, that it will end up liking me too. That's beautiful. That's That's, so that's what I'm trying to do. But not for nothing, hair products are really expensive. Oh, <laughs> even for curly hair. Yes. Um, so that's something I need to I need to work towards, and then we as a society need to work on too, because it should not cost this much to look this good. <laughs> it really shouldn't. <laughs> well, thank you, Karina, for being here today. I loved hearing about your hair and everyone's hair. You guys, thank you all for having me. 
I'm so glad that I could share my hair with you if it wasn't already big enough to uh, consume all of you as it is my head right now. Um, I'm glad that, you know, we were able to talk about some serious topics through it. To braid together. (laughs) Karen, with the pun. So our next piece is entitled The Bus Ride. Like Karina's Pura Viva, it was selected for a reading at Travelogue. And in fact, we are going to share with you now a live recording from that night in October of 2015, when Maioli first shared her work for a public audience. Yay! Thank you, Maioli. Thank you for having me. When she was 12 years old, she received a full scholarship to the boarding high school called the Orm School of Arizona, where she graduated with honors. Maioli is currently vice president of the Latin American Student Organization at John Jay. So let's listen to the bus ride. I sit in the middle of the bus, right by the window, next to someone I rarely speak to. My best friend sits in the far right, all the way in the back of the bus. Pink headphones hang from her fingers. Her eyebrows, coming together, carry and crease her forehead. Just below her eyebrows, her determined eyes, the color of mud, seem to question the knot on the cords in her hand. Her nose expands as she takes a deep breath and exhales fast. This is the time of the year when my boarding school forces students to embrace nature and to bond with other students outside of our normal circle of friends. We are on a one hour ride to the annual adventure the school board baptized as full outing. Our driver is a football coach, a heavy-set Latin American man from California who never learned to speak Spanish. The sun slaps my left eye when I turn to look at the window. Arizona should be called the cactus state, I think. There are so many everywhere. The bus moves fast, and the cacti soon become green flashes. I stare at them until I drift off. Soon, I'm no longer on the bus. I'm wandering around a gift shop in Utah. I'm looking at little ceramic sculptures of buffalo when I see a fluffy looking cactus. It is fascinating, I think. And so I wrap my hand around it with the same fearlessness of a small child wandering along the shore of the ocean. Ouch! I feel this thing in my right hand A thousand needles penetrate my skin as my nervous system forces my hand to retrieve. I am back in my seat soon after. My hand still hurts, and there are miles and more miles of open road to come, but the view is calming. I watch intently as the plants and rocks look like they are moving backwards. Back home, in Harlem, the buildings sit still when I walk past them on my way to the train, which moves faster than this, and does not let me see what is ahead. On the bus, I can see what is around me, but this doesn't make it more familiar. I look to the back of the bus to see if my best friend has finally untangled her headphones. I'm pleased to see the tiny butt sticking out from her earlobes. Her forehead is still folded. My best friend, an African-American 15-year-old who hates outside anything, is a true city girl. She's unaccustomed to the bug bites, the smell of fresh air, and walking for hours. She prefers 
Perfume City Malls, and the smell of freshly brewed Starbucks coffee. <laughs> she reminds me of the girls back in Harlem who would wince at the thought of going on a hike. I don't really like Starbucks coffee, but I understand that the smell of freshly brewed Starbucks coffee, um, freshly brewed coffee is heavenly. Growing up with my mother and grandmother, I quickly learned to love coffee. The smell of my mother's Café Santo Domingo carried me all the way back to the Caribbean, a place where I was always outside before we moved to New York and way before I ever left for boarding school in Arizona. My head pivots to the back of the seat in front of me. I can only see the back of it. It is a rectangular shape with round edges at the top, small lines engrave it. The same line, lines that appear on people's faces when they age. Most of the wrinkles in the back of this seat are at the bottom, a sure sign that people with both big and little butts have sat there. <laughs> there is a rip. The fake black leather covering the seat has given up and this has created an open wound. The yellow stuffing is exposed as bits of fake cow skin hang from the sides of the yellow part desperately clinging to the uninjured part. My best friend's voice breaks my analysis of the seat. This is still bootleg, she yells, tired of the ride. One of the football players responds, shut up. He is a heavy, tall, heavy and tall European American who I once beat at a pie eating contest back in October. His friend joins him and calls to her, yeah, shut your mouth. Before I can stop the words from vomiting from my mouth, I respond, you shut up. She can say whatever she wants. The second boy is another European-American, but he is tall and skinny. He sits in front of me on the seat with the open wound. He makes fun of my Spanish accent and tells me I sound like a fucking hyena. Fuck you, I answer. At least I have a language that's mine. You're mad because I understand what you're saying, but you can't understand my language. <laughs> I then speak to him in Spanish because I know it will make him mad. Mardito gringo, ven, sacame, ven. Por lo menos mis ancestros no mataron para que yo esté aquí. He doesn't understand my words, but just as I predicted, they make him mad anyway. He turns red, then pink. The purple veins in his neck stick out as he proceeds to spit out racist lurts. Wet back, you dirty fucking Mexican, he says before he asks that I should get the fuck out of his country. I am deaf by this point. I can't hear him anymore over the sound of my anger. It pulses through my ears as if sent by headphones a full blast. I stab him with my eyes. I think to myself about how many ways I could take him. I think about how many ways my best friend and I could take them both. I think of how big his body is, how strong he is, how unafraid I am. I think of how if he dared touch me, I would grab his head and smash it against the window. The blood gushing from his head would add color to the dull scenery framed by the broken glass. Parts of his left eyebrow would be gone stuck to the jagged shards. The boy's eyes would look up to the sky for an answer, but he would not find God in the ceiling of this bus. He would feel weak, probably dizzy. 
His legs, would, his legs would go numb. He would bow to me as he fell to his seat. My fingers would press on his neck. He would be branded before my right hand would pull back and then forward in the direction of his mouth. Jab, cross, jab, cross, hook, dab, jab, jab, hook, cross. His head would swing back, allowing me to see his red nostrils. The boy would raise his hand to defend himself, but I would grab that hand and twist it before he would reach me. He would jerk in pain. Get up the fucking chair, I command the boy in Spanish. <laughs> the heavyset, non-Spanish speaking Latino bus driver would not understand what I said. He would stop, but he would stop the bus and look back. The boy would not comply, so I would grab him by his blue shirt and drag him outside. My fingers would be entangled in his soft gringo hair. I would smash his head on the ground, engraving the shape of his horrifying face on the stand. He would look like the dirty one from the brown stand engraved that would stick to his skin. I'd kick him in the stomach full force before I'd get on top of him. Close-fisted, I'd punch him in the eyes, nose, mouth, chest, legs, nose, mouth, chest, again and again and again. I'd hear his voice in my mind as I punched him. You dirty fucking Mexican, get the fuck out of my country! I'd hear that over and over and over as my nails would claw at his ears. Blood would run from his ears to his jawline to his throat. It would stream from his cheek, drenching the dry earth. If anything grew here, it would be poisonous, I think. His mouth would start to foam. I would look around at the stain stand for, for anything, for a rock. My left hand would pin him down while my right hand reached for the stone. Its sharp edges would hurt the places the cactus had stung me, but I wouldn't care. I would lift the rock in the same way. I lift my Dominican flag. I would aim at his temple. I would. But then, <laughs> then the others would get up to see. I'd see them staring from the bus windows looks of horror in their eyes as I confirmed the stereotypes they'd heard about people like me. The first week of boarding school, some of the students had asked me, is Harlem really like the show in the movies? Are people from Harlem violent? No, I had told them. And so I just sit there. I stare at the rib seat and say nothing. But then, then, I glance at the driver, whose ears seem to have shut up. One of his eyes runs towards the center of his nose while the other runs away from it toward his right ear. He is listening, he's heard. He will take action now. He will do something. He will make this right. He will tell this asshole that we're not hyenas or wetback or dirty or, but he doesn't. He just sits there and says nothing. He's no more helpful than anyone else on that bus. Like them, he is silent. Like me, he is Latin American. But unlike me, he has power. He is the driver. He is older. He has no accent. He is their coach. Thank you. <laughs> What a passionate piece. Angry, passionate, but still passionate. Um, so, of course, we have Maoli here in studio as one of our 
host tonight, but also as one of our writers. So thank you, Mayoli, for coming. Thank you for uh, for listening. Yes, mm-hmm. thank you for having me. <laughs> so now a person that caught my attention that I was really drawn to from the beginning is this bus driver. So in the beginning, you describe him as a heavy set Latin American man from California who never learned to speak Spanish. And the fact that you specifically point that out, that he never learned to speak the language of his heritage, is very intriguing as a way to describe a person. And as a Latina myself, coming from a Latin family surrounded by Latin people, um, you often hear of the second generation that lives in the United States that doesn't learn their language of origin at all. And oftentimes the the child is seen as kind of lazy or like the parents are looked down upon by Spanish speakers for not having taken the time to teach their child Spanish. And I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Like, do you feel that children of Spanish-speaking parents should learn Spanish even if they live in the United States? Um, well, I specifically chose to highlight the fact that the bus driver didn't speak Spanish because of what was what would follow next. So it was kind of like a setting the tone, like foreshadowing a little bit uh, there. In terms of whether I think parents should teach their kids Spanish, like absolutely, you should not not just Spanish, but if you're like French, you should learn French. If you're, mm-hmm. you know, from wherever you are, like you should learn your native language. Mm-hmm. It's important to maintain your culture to be um kind of like connected to your roots and like knowing a second language no matter what it is it's it's good it's it's an advantage so why not i don't think i don't know to me like not like the fact that some little kids are not taught spanish i think that's i don't see it as like a lazy thing from their parents Mm -hmm. i see it more as of like uh, lack of knowledge Mm -hmm. lack of acceptance like i know when i came to the united states i was nine years old and my mom was like you're gonna forget about spanish and you're just gonna learn english because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what you need to know to succeed and yeah. um i was always a little kid that was like no <laughs> so yeah I, I was good but but I, I if i felt like something wasn't right i tend to like rebel against it yeah. so it just made me want to be closer to my culture and to you know my language mm-hmm. so f- right now i'm fluent both in spanish and english and mm-hmm. i find that to be very empowering for me yes and i find it to be an advantage like i can understand what other people say yeah. sometimes they can't understand what i'm saying <laughs> yeah, so, yeah that's that's bomb because there kind of does i kind of understand where your mom might be coming from there because there kind of is this prejudice that if you don't kind of forget your heritage you won't be able to fit into this new one Mm -hmm. and you won't be able to have the advantages that an american person some person that is more american might have but in the end having the two is definitely a benefit i feel yeah and i think i feel like sometimes when parents do that like they think that they're helping their children because you're more acculturated Mm -hmm. but in my case i don't want to be acculturated (laughs) i wanted to be rooted in my culture and that's not an obstacle for me to become part of this new co- country, this new culture. But at the same time, I get to keep my culture. Like, why can't I? You know, it makes mm-hmm. it didn't make sense to me. So yeah, yeah, definitely. So con- continuing with this intrigue of this complicated character that is the bus driver. That I don't know why I'm so obsessed with him, but I am. After you go into this quick 
like because in your real time thoughts it was like a matter of seconds but to us it was a whole page full of this detailed and intense description of what you wanted to do to these guys who were disrespecting you and your culture there's a moment when you look up and you realize that the bus driver has heard everything that has transpired and that he's been like looking in the little rear view rear he's been looking <laughs> in the rear view mirror and you're grateful and you say like like he's listening he's heard he will take action now he will do something he will make this right and he will tell this asshole that we are not hyenas or webbacks or dirty or and i definitely felt that hope i was like yeah like he's finally gonna stick up for her and these guys aren't gonna get away with it and then he doesn't um this authority figure doesn't say anything to these boys who are under his power and under his authority. So how did you, how did that make you feel? Like, were you angry with him? Were you disappointed? Did you kind of understand a little bit? I didn't understand. I was very upset and I know, (laughs) and I was, um, I felt like he himself, you know, he may not have been an immigrant. He may have been born here, but he is, his background it's a background of you know an immigrant background his parents were immigrants and even these boys were making fun of me were they're immigrants that's why i specifically choose to highlight that they were european americans Mm -hmm. um but that's another issue Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i felt i felt very upset at at the driver one because he he had the power to do something about it and Mm -hmm. two i felt really betrayed i um he's like this guy he's not only dissing me for being latin american He's dissing every immigrant population that has come to the United States by diminishing me from for not being born here for my mm-hmm. accent or attempting to diminish me yeah. um, for my accent. So I felt I felt very angry with the driver. I think I felt more angry with the driver than I than mm-hmm. I was with the guys. Ah. Yeah, I feel the exact yeah. same feelings. So how do you feel that him having not learned Spanish? How do you feel that that tied into that? I feel like. So I chose to 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 write it because he's not connected to his mm. roots. That's one, yeah. and two, it, it there's an acculturation issue, right? Like having I I understand like some people that are born here, they often say I'm not from here, I'm not from there, because you have a culture that's your own, but sometimes you're not taught about that culture, so you end up thinking, well, I'm not, you know, the, the stereotypical. U.S. person, it's it, you. You typically think of a white person. That's why I feel like everybody in this country has to hyphenate, right? African Americans, Latin Americans, Asian Americans, except white people. You, you, they're just called yeah. Americans. Why, mm-hmm. right? So the stereotypical view of a person from the U.S. Is, tends to be white, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of immigrants that come to this country in my experience particularly from latin america they say yes i was born here but i i feel like i'm from i'm not from here and i'm not from there like there's something about themselves that they can't fully fit in into this country but if when they don't learn about their roots they don't understand their background so they can't say well i'm dominican and like that's my country mm-hmm. so i felt like i i understood from his side i highlighted that he didn't speak spanish because I, f- I also felt betrayed at the fact that, okay, you're Latin American, but you're not acting like I would expect you to act. He's calling me wet back, all these terms that your ancestors were called. 
and you don't see that why don't you see that at the time i didn't understand that right and the fact that he didn't speak spanish really spoke to me as a fact that he did not understand his background and his culture and why wouldn't you be offended by this um at the least you know as a person of authority he should have stepped in he should have stopped that bus and said y'all need to stop (laughs) or something absolutely yeah absolutely even i feel like even if he wasn't hispanic not hispanic necessarily latin american even if he wasn't latin american you don't let kids be that harmful and say these slurs to other kids he is an authority figure so that that made me so angry (laughs) yeah i mean one thing i didn't mention in this piece um was that um that might have influenced his non-reaction, the fact that he didn't react to to the boys like bullying me uh, and my friend. Bef- he used to be my advisor, the the coach. So at this boarding school, we have advisors. So we go to their house for dinner. Wow. He used to be, yeah. So we used to be really cool, and um, he also used to be my track coach because I I did track for like a few months <laughs> in high school. Um, yeah, and I we, we didn't have after after I joined the track team, like our relationship kind of like broke apart a little bit. Mm. So that was one issue that I felt like, okay, maybe he's not standing up because he like hates me, you know, teen mm. like as a teenager, you're like, Yeah, like maybe that's what it is. But what really struck to me was that he's very he's Latin American and that he mm-hmm. he Absolutely. Yeah, he just stayed quiet. I don't like this bus driver anymore. <laughs> well, I never did, but still <laughs> That just oh that 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 particular detail put things into like a completely different perspective that just makes you even angrier. Well, okay. So going back to that scene before you kind of experience all this disappointment and anger for this bus driver, you imagine all the ways that you would make these boys pay, and I was right there with you with it, (laughs) all of it. And there's so much angry passion, like I said before, attached to these thoughts. And you want to kick the main guy in the stomach and you want to take him by the hair and drag him outside. You want to raise a rock above his head and you want to aim for his temple. And it makes me wonder, like, is this the first time that you've been disrespected for your race like this? Or is this a mounting anger at the prejudices that you've gone through that has just resulted in these thoughts that just are the way that they are? I mean, the way... So the way that I was raised was if if somebody uh, offends you if somebody hits you if somebody like you fight back you don't just sit there and that was one of the reasons why I I was I observed him like my first thought was like if he comes near me like he but like that's it <laughs> let <laughs> like, him put a yeah. hand on me <laughs> yeah I mean it sounds whatever ratchet whatever i embrace it you know whatever but um (laughs) but it's the truth and and i i embraced it because i wasn't gonna sit there and let him um abuse me verbally or or even physically of course you know so that's that's one thing um the other thing uh was looking back uh i explore my emotions in this creative way so i you know i i looking back i envisioned myself doing all these things um and kind of like exploring my anger yeah yeah i I mean i don't know (laughs) yeah um what was the other question i'm sorry (laughs) 
<laughs> it was also um is this the the first time oh like, right disrespected for your race like um it, it i think it was the most blatant uh mm-hmm. example of racism that i've experienced before though there were like little subtle moments that like kind of make me think like oh like what's going on like for example we would be going on a trip and like uh, a guy would approach you know one of my classmates like a white girl uh and sh- if the guy was white she would say like oh this guy came up to me but if the guy was like latino or mm-hmm. black it would there would be an emphasis on the fact that the guy was you know it, it's always if you're like an american in arizona you're mexican yeah. and that's one of the things that bother me uh now that i don't love mexico like but th- i think they're awesome yeah but I'm Dominican and I would sell them that. And then they're like, no, you're Mexican. And yeah. So if you're Latin American or Spanish speaking, it would be like, oh yeah, this Mexican guy came up to me or this black guy came up to me and it was like this. But if again, if it was a white guy, it would just be like, oh, this guy came up. So Mm -hmm. why is there a need to emphasize the race and and the connotation and the way that they say it? You know, it's very different Mm -hmm. uh, when, when, when a person of color approached them as opposed to when like, yeah. a white person approached yeah. them like why is white the default why is a white guy just a guy but a latin american man is a latin american man right you know I mean? so, so it it was like whiteness is like the standard like exactly. the norm and everything else was just like the different abnormal, the yeah. yeah the abnormal and like those little things like i at a, even at a young age i was able yeah. to like pick up and like kind of like think about as i went through my journey uh in boarding school so it was like little moments like that um, where they would be like, um, like, it's Harlem. It's Harlem dangerous. It's Harlem really like in the movies. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because they all have these preconceived notions. I also live in Harlem. I also, I don't, I don't know if I should, I don't know if I should talk about it on here, but the, <laughs> the cheeseburger, the oh. cheeseburger story, I live right by that Burger King and I can see it from outside my window. So when I read that, I was like, I was like, oh my god, is that famous Burger King? I think I took a picture of it. Actually. I'm so weird. To our listeners, Maoli also has another piece uh, for Life Out Loud called "The Cheesest Cheeseburger" that can be found on episode one. That also, <laughs> for anyone who does not live in or around Harlem, that also kind of details like life in that specific area a little bit more. So another question I have is about this part that really got me as as well, which was this analysis, as you call it of the bus seat in front of you and you say there is a rip the fake black leather has given up and this has created an open wound the yellow stuffing is exposed as bits of leather hang from the sides of the yellow part desperately clinging to the uninjured part and to top it off this boy the the main boy that you want to like beat up he then sits on the wound and it's just really got me because it's this powerful and impactful description so did you really was there another meaning besides that seeming like really like well and beautifully written like was this a representation of something um thank you (laughs) (laughs) um so i saw i so in creative nonfiction, we're taught to find different ways to describe things and when we find those different ways we can use a technique like foreshadowing to just kind of like set the tone, the mood for the reader or the listener. In my case, I just wrote the description 
of the of of the seat i wasn't really thinking about anything and then i realized like it fit in really well but when i when i was sitting um, writing this piece i kind of like to put myself in the position that i was before like emotionally kind of mm -hmm. and when that happens I feel like things just come to you and like you learn to see things in a different perspective. And yeah. I think that's what happened to me with this description was that I was so angry. I was thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, like just what's going to happen. Next. Yeah. And, and I think that this description came to me, like there's a rip, it looks like a wound. So why not describe it as a wound mm -hmm. and use and like kind of like make it fit. Yeah. 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 And it is like a technique that we are kind of taught that when it's used like that and then when you get to the part that, I don't know, there is that, the part that it kind of leads up to where you feel this kind of underlying strangeness or emotion that is invoked by descriptions like wound as a seat. When you get to the part where that part kind of makes sense, it always flows really beautifully. And I really feel like your piece did that. Oh, thank like, you. <laughs> out really, really well. So lastly, what do you want readers to take away from this piece? That's a good question. <laughs> what I want readers to take from this piece is that some some people may be in denial that racism exists in the United States. And I've heard it. I've heard it from a lot of people. No, racism doesn't exist. What are you talking about? Slavery is over. Mm. Like you're just making it up or the typical people just like to act like they're oppressed or you mm. know and it's it's horrible. So the, like this things happen to people. This is just one example. Worse things have happened to people. Of course. And I think that it's time for people to get out of their denial and to really learn that This is a serious issue. This is not, a, I'm going to walk in the park or I'm going to fix it with a little band-aid kind of issue. Like this is real and it affects yes. people at all, of all ages, at all levels. And I think that coming from a perspective of a teen, I think it, it kind of maybe opens up like eyes for, for people that like racism doesn't just happen at a... Uh, level where you're like finding a job and I'm, I don't get the job because of this or of that but it happens on, on everyday social circumstances it can happen on a bus ride where you're going you know fall outing um, with your schoolmates and it affects people and it's a real issue and I think that I want people I wanted people to be aware of like what's going on with this um, with this piece to be more socially um, justice conscious yes Social justice conscious. I don't know if I even said it that right. But yeah, I think that 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 would be what I the ideal takeaway that I would like people to get from my piece for this one, at least. <laughs> That's really incredible. And I really love that. And I definitely got that message um, when I read it the first time when I was in class, when I reread it the past few days, when I knew that I'd be interviewing you. And that definitely stuck out that this is totally real. And of course, as a Latina, I've experienced things myself, but it's never, um, it always feels kind of good, not good, but it always feels kind of reassuring that you aren't making things up right? Yeah. when you see, read someone else's experiences like this. So thank you very much, Mayoli. Thank you for letting us, <laughs> letting me pick your brain. <laughs> thank you, Karen. <laughs> Thank you.
This next piece, WWMD, is by Sam Tapia. It was also selected for a public reading at Travelogue, but tonight's recording was actually done here in studio. So a little bit about the writer. Sam Tapia was born in a small village outside of Puebla, Mexico. He immigrated to the United States with his family at the tender age of three. During his formative years, Sam learned the guitar and performed with bands comprised of a close-knit group of friends. He also cultivated a passion for creating art, dabbling in drawing, and collage works. He later was inspired to attend cosmetology school as the first career choice influenced by artistic hair design. After traveling abroad, Sam decided he wanted to make an impact and help change society. He enrolled at John Jay to earn a degree in international criminal justice. After participating in some of his first creative writing courses, Sam has learned a new passion and continues to hone his writing skills. He is currently in his last year at John Jay and lives in Harlem with his girlfriend two cats, and a collection of 30 cacti and succulents. So let's listen to WWMD by Sam Tapia. You don't believe I'll ever be famous, just like I don't believe you'll ever be an ambassador, she says. Why do you think that? Because you're not social enough. She's right. I'm not. It's not about that, Lau. A good ambassador picks his battles. I, too, was picking my battles with her. We've been fighting since the day before when we arrived on this little island called Holbosch, without reservations, and because of that, we're forced to sleep in a tiny room full of mosquitoes next to one of the only clubs in the island. We hardly slept that night because the music kept us up. The morning after, as the light came in through the only window in the room, we noticed dark cherry red stains all over the bed sheets and walls. Sometime during the night, I must have gone into battle with those relentless bloodsuckers. I was too exhausted to remember for sure. And Lao was too gross not to care. Get us out of here, I could hear her pleading. And so I did. I get us a private suite at a different hostel. And it makes her happy until we start to argue again. Lao steps out to the balcony of our private suite to smoke a cigarette and cool off. I stay indoors, lying on the king-size bed, and try to write in my travel journal. But I can't think of anything to write. So instead, I just stare at the pen. Before we left the JFK... We grab two pens from the bright yellow Café Bustelo tin can that holds all of our writing tools. A home full of art supplies, we managed to grab the two pens with the least amount of ink. The first one died two days after we arrived in Mexico. We were resting in front of the Angel of Independence after a long day of exploring, and it ran out of ink in the middle of my sketch of the Angel's wings. We could have bought another pen, of course, but we agreed to see how long the second one would last. We were adventurous that way the way some get off on driving their cars with the needle pointing to empty. I snapped the book shut, put the pen in my pocket, and stepped out on the balcony. I'm hoping to make peace and have no idea that the screen door is about to lock from the inside due to a loose latch. Great, now we're stuck out here, she says angrily. Shit. The sound of her yelling makes me forget why I went out there in the first place. I stare off into the distance trying to figure out what the fuck to do. Our balcony faces the back of the hostel. There isn't much to look at. One would think that a private suite would have a more scenic view. After the night before, we were just glad to be there, even if it did face a wall painted in empty balconies. Now, the two of us stuck out here would have to yell pretty loudly for any of the other guests to hear. That is, if anyone was even in the room at this time of day, it was beach prime time after all. Seriously, what are we going to do now, Sam? I know I have to formulate an escape plan before she finishes her cigarette. Her pack is on top of the bed, locked inside, and if I don't have a plan by the time she's done with this one, she'll really start to freak out. She tends to chain smoke whenever she gets worried. I got this. You worried so much. I lie. Except that it wasn't a lie. 
at least not the part about her worrying too much. The night before our morning flight, she stayed up all night worrying about how we would be able to afford a month-long trip. We'll be fine, I reassured her, not believing it myself. What if I come back to no clients, she says. You won't. All of your clients are away right now. You know how slow August can be. Now that bit, I did believe. But now, out on the balcony, she really did have a reason to worry. I had absolutely no plan. What if we get stuck out here all night? Then what? She asks. We're not going to get stuck out here all night. I'll get us out of this. And if you can't? I have a plan. I lie again. We're not going to get stuck out here. I try to figure out what the fuck to do as I go through the pockets of my swimming trunks, hoping to find something, anything, to pry open the door. Sand? Lint? More sand? A receipt? A pen? The pen? The one pen that made it, and that always seemed to get me out of awkward situations, like it did the night we spent in Mexico City. That night, I used about another quarter of the ink left in it to sketch out the crooked lines and imperfect circles that were supposed to be the Metropolitan Cathedral, of which we had an amazing view. It wowed a couple of the other guests, and one Aussie woman in particular. Wow, that's really good, she said. Thanks, I try. I replied while making the least amount of eye contact. That was pretty much the end of the conversation, but to be fair, she hadn't really given me much to work with. Lao, however, is more social and works with what she's got, so it wasn't long before this poor Australian woman was pouring out her deepest secrets to her. I tried to block her out as much as I could, as I continued to straighten out the crooked lines of the cathedral on my sketchpad with a pen. Yet, I couldn't help noticing the Australian woman's emphasis on how single she was. Perhaps she was suggesting something, or maybe I was taking it out of context. All I knew was that I was glad to have the pen, so I could pretend to be busy and, like always, not talk. Lau and I were always getting each other into unpleasant situations. I had the pen to distract me, and she had her cigarettes. Before we ended up stuck on this balcony in Holbosch, we were in the colonial city of Oaxaca, which is located eight hours south of Mexico City. The cobblestone streets were very European, according to Lau. It's Europe covered in cacti, she added. She grabbed a pen for me to write that down in her travel journal. I had never been across the pond, so I just nodded. On one of the nights we were there, Lau and I were enjoying a quiet moment writing in our travel journals at the hostel bar when some British lad came by to ask if we wanted to join him in a game of Yaniv. I would have politely declined, but Lau, of course, said, Sure. Thank you, Lau. Now I have to pretend that I'm listening as he explains the rules to this card game. Got it? He asked. Nope. I think. He then asked if we had a pen to keep score. Now, did we have a pen? Of course we did. The pen was always in my pocket. And that night, we kept the score of Carlos and Israel from Mexico, Magdalena from Austria, Sebastian from England, and Lau and I from New York. After Sebastian crushed us without mercy in Yaniv, we all walked over to the local food market for 50 cent tacos and two dollar cervezas. Carlos and Magdalena instantly hit it off, so they took a seat in the corner of our next bar, and Lau joined them because, well, they were smokers. Since I have asthma, I sat with the non-smokers, Israel and Sebastian at the other end of the table. Sebastian called it a night after two drinks, leaving me alone with Israel, which made things even more awkward for me. Not really knowing what to say, I, of course, began to play with the pen, absently doodling on a napkin in front of me. Wow, this sucks, I remember thinking as I stared at what I drew. But Israel complimented whatever the pen's random slimes formed. 
I should probably say something, I thought to myself. So, I complimented his English. Two shot glasses of Moscow later, I finally put the pen down and started listening. Israel had lived in Chicago for a few years and returned to Mexico not long ago to continue his studies at the University of Morelos. He was studying criminal psychology and became interested in my field of study, international criminal justice. We discussed the current epidemic of missing and murdered women in Mexico. Hundreds of women and the activists fighting for them were turning up dead left and right, while the government showed no interest in pursuing criminal investigations. We both agreed we were pursuing dangerous careers and fell silent as we slowly sipped our mezcal, not for the taste, but to feel the fire in our throats, as if it could somehow burn away the horrible words spoken. I could see Lao chain smoking from across the table and wonder what her conversation with Carlos and Magdalena was about. She burst out laughing, and I half-drunkenly smiled, glad their conversation was a little lighter than ours. Our end of the table had fallen silent again, and so... Like always, I pulled out the pen and continued to doodle on the now-wet napkin. Well, the pen won't save me this time, I think, back on the balcony where I've made absolutely no progress. The flame is reaching the butterfly cigarette now, and I got nothing. Maybe if I wave the pen at the door and recite a couple of abracadabras, it'll magically disappear. I laugh. Like some Harry Potter shit. Highly unlikely. Think, think, think. Think, Sam. Think, think, think the fuck would MacGyver do? I checked my pockets again, hoping to find something other than the pen to open the door with. Nothing. Lau's voice is starting to get louder and lower. I decide it's now or never. I unscrew the end of the cap and take the ink cartridge out. That's a good start, I think, as I glisten with pride. I flatten the end of the ink cartridge with my teeth and insert the flat side of the cartridge between the faceplate and the strike plate of the doorknob. I feel like MacGyver, like James Bond, like Ethan Hawke, Jason Bourne, a fucking spy. I wiggle it, but nothing happens. Seriously, I just have to get the one fucking room with the broken screen door? I can't smell the cigarette smoke anymore. All that remains is her patchouli-scented perfume and the smell of the seesaw carried by the humid air. I wiggle it again and again. Nothing happens. I start to realize it isn't pride that's glistening off of my face. No, it's a sweat a weapons disarmament officer gives off as a crowd of onlookers wait anxiously to see if he can save the day. Come on. Come on, buddy. I pray to the pen over and over. You've saved the day many times before. Come on, save me now. Again and again, I try. I turn around to see if Lau is watching me fail, but she's looking over the balcony hoping anyone might be down there to help. I can imagine her flailing her arms wildly, screaming, Help! Help! My boyfriend's an idiot! Help me! She turns back to me before flicking her cigarette over the railing and giving me the squint, which means time is up. I wiggle the pen again and again and again, and at this point, I'm just willing it to do what it fucking won't, until suddenly, suddenly, the latch bolt finally clicks. It's unlocked. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, I say to the pen. Thank you. The mangled ink cartridge stains my fingers, and so I step back, dropping it to the ground. It lays besides the cap and the barrel. All three pieces stare up at me. So sad looking. So spent. So 
dead. You broke the pen? I can tell she's a little upset. Uh, yeah, to get us back in, I tell her. Well, I guess that's okay. Her vacation was turning into my diplomatic mission to maintain the peace between us, and that came with a lot of compromises from both sides. She wanted us to swim with whale sharks? Sure. Explore the crocodile-infested swamps? No thanks. I wanted to take an eight-hour bus ride? Okay. A 15-hour bus ride? She wasn't going to let it happen. In a way, the sacrifice of the pen brought forth a sense of reconciliation between us that was probably long overdue. Later that night, Lau cooks a simple rice and bean dinner, and I wash the dishes after. And as we sit in silence in the dining terrace, sharing another cerveza, we pour one out for our fallen comrade, the pen, the pen who'd made it all that way. What a great travel story. Wow. Amazing. It warmed my heart and I laughed so hard. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so Sam, so let's, let's get started with a question because I'm dying to know. Um, so throughout the story, you seem very attached to this pen of yours. And Lau <laughs> was very attached to her cigarettes. Almost kind of like her love for the cigarettes and your love for the pen prevents you from focusing more on each other or from just enjoying your relationship. So in the piece, did you intend for the cigarette and the pen to be kind of like an obstacle for, for you two to like enjoy each other or your relationship? Also, the objects are almost a symbolism of your personality. In the piece, we see a quiet Sam who likes to draw. And it's interesting because pens are typically associated with artists who like to be alone and spend a lot of time writing quietly or, or drawing. Um, Lao, on the other hand, from what I understood of the piece, is very social. Uh, cigarettes are typically smoked at social events. So it goes well with, with, the, per uh, with the character in the story. So did you intend for you and Lao to have such a strong connection personality-wise with the pen and the cigarettes? Was that intentional? Uh, not so much the pen. The pen was like an afterthought, really. It was more of the cigarettes. And I know she's going to hate that because, <laughs> like, as you, as you were asking me um, her love for cigarettes, like, I know when she hears this, she is going to absolutely Bug out. hate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, like her, her smoking bothers me. Um, it, it's like one of the things that I wanted to highlight in the piece, and I hope that when she read it, like she would understand how much it bothers me. The the pen, like I, I focused on that afterwards. When I was on my trip, I I wasn't like always drawing or writing. I tried being in the present moment, enjoying, you know, Mexico. Um, it wasn't until that night or that day that when we got stuck on the balcony that when I took out the pen that I realized, oh, wow, this pen has been with me for this entire trip. And like, that's kind of when it became important, but it wasn't like <clears throat> super important at the moment. It was like afterwards, like in hindsight, oh, wow, this pen, like really, like I would have been in deep shit had, had that pen not been with me, you know, because it really did save us. It was so simple. I just 
put it in there, <laughs> open the door. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I realized that's oh, kind of a funny story, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. I noticed um, from the, cig- the you said the cigarette was the most important part at the beginning of the, when you were writing the piece. And I, I could see that. I could see the cigarette being really important because you use it kind of as a timer, kind of like when she's done with the with this pack that she has up here like, i better have opened that door <laughs> so was that intentional too like i, I just want to know was that like a s- writer strategy that you use uh, i'm gonna be honest no it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> it worked well <laughs> i know actually you were the one who brought it up i remember in your mm-hmm. um like in class you mentioned that and i was like i hadn't even re- yeah i hadn't even realized that i had done that but it was it was pretty smart of me i'm gonna say <laughs> <laughs> good job um, me yeah <laughs> Um. Yeah, but no, I it wasn't intentional. Mm, yeah. Okay, it worked out. <laughs> it did. It yeah. Did. So going back to this pen, that I'm still stuck on the pen. It not only seems to characterize you, but seems to be your savior many times throughout the piece. Um, in regards to, you know, finding something to talk about with this guy, and also to get back in that hotel room. And for many writers, our pen or pens are our saviors every day. So do you consider the pen to be your savior? And if so, has this always been the case for you? Uh, yeah. Um, to be honest, I, I was stuck in a lot of uh, socially awkward situations when I was in Mexico, just because I'm, I'm a very shy person. And like you guys said earlier, from the piece, it seems like Lau is very social. She is. She is very social. Um, so when I would get nervous, yes, I would take out the pen and I would start, you know, drawing whatever beautiful scenery was present. And yes, it did save me a lot of times. Um, which is kind of funny because Lau is actually the artist. See, the artist, she's the one who draws and paints and she went to art school. But when I was in, when we were in Mexico together, it was actually me who was doing all of that. And it was like my like my comfort zone, basically, yeah. you know. Uh, so yes, the pen is my savior in Mexico and here in New York and life in general. Yes. Okay, so the pen definitely served as an escape for you. Uh, the, there seems to be a theme of battle throughout the story. Um, I noticed in the beginning when you're battling the blood suckers, <laughs> and at night you're fighting with Lao or battling against social interactions, for example. You were really invested in drawing and weren't really interested in socializing. Ironically, all the battles seem to be fights to keep peace with Lao. Again, I feel like your pen is almost like your sword throughout all these battles. Was this intentional? If yes, how did you keep that theme of battling or fighting consistent throughout the, throughout your story? Um, yeah, it was intentional. There was a lot of fighting when we were on this trip. Um, we, we have very different ideas of what we like to do when we travel. She's a sit-at-the-beach kind of girl. I'm more of an explorer. Like I like to like go to different places, explore, like really engage with the culture. Um, so because of that, there were a lot of like differences on this trip. And, you know, I, I wanted to, to go to different states. I, I actually wanted to go to like different countries. I wanted to do like this whole backpacking trip. And she got tired after like the first week. <laughs> uh, we were on a bus for like 15 hours long. Uh, she got sick. She blamed it on me. 
<laughs> so yeah, there were there were a lot of fights, um, and I I again I also did want to highlight that I didn't want to villainize her, but I wanted her to you know I was basically expressing myself like mm-hmm. telling her how I felt and I put that in writing you know because it's it's kind of like what I do best I like writing a lot too not just drawing um, so. She she read my piece and she realized that she was in the wrong, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you mean she didn't try to fight you after it? Yeah, for real. <laughs> I, I, was this a what, fight? Start? No, a yeah, battle, yeah. Battle. We, we, there was another battle afterwards, <laughs> actually, because she said that I villainized her too much. But, um, I don't think you villainized her. No. I like her so, character. I don't think so either. Well, you, you still chill. Yeah, you know. she's actually very chill, yeah. Um. But yeah, we're very different people. It's it's kind of funny how we ended up together. Um, yeah, that's really cool. I like I like that. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So, are you still? You kind of answered this a little bit, but to clarify, are you still with Lau? And how is your relationship with her now? Yeah, we're still together. We've been together for almost four years now. Um, we're going to California next month after I graduate. Yeah, it's going to be nice. And then probably Italy for the summer. Wow. Um, after a couple of things that I need to take care of. should probably edit that out, right? No. No? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sam's like, am I giving away too much? <laughs> am I being less Unless than serious? Unless you don't want to say you're going to Italy. No, I was going to talk about my... my. I'm currently in the process of uh, getting oh. my citizenship. <gasps> yeah. Wow. Cool. Yay. We're leaving all of this in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually I got invited to go to Tanzania for the summer, but I can't go because of that because I'm oh. waiting on that. So, but hopefully I can go to Italy after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thank wow. you. <laughs> really cool. Yeah. Um, so I would love to ask you about um, kind of like deviating a little bit from what we just talked about how you kind of painted this amazing picture for the listener because one moment i found myself with you and lao at the balcony and you're trying to open the door and then the next moment i'm in like mexico exploring mexico city by like so i didn't even realize when i left the balcony like my mind just went in with you it was like a trip uh and i could see everything so how did you like how did you do that (laughs) what was like your technique what were you thinking when you were writing that when you're writing the piece oh um what, what do you call it when you like inter interweave different the weave. braiding Braid. the braiding uh-huh. technique? Yeah, that was beautifully done. Yeah. Um, okay, so in the creative writing class that I took with uh, Madrazo, Professor Madrazo last semester, uh, we learned this technique. It's called um, braiding, um, and I've I've actually I have used that technique before. I just didn't know what it was called. And and the way that she taught it for us uh, really helped me build this piece, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I really like that technique because it, like like you said, it takes you to like different moments, mm-hmm. basically. So you don't have to stay in the same place. Mm-hmm. You can you can braid these different uh, places and times into your story, and I, I think that's actually one of my favorite. Uh, writing techniques you know yeah 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 i think you we we spoke about um not right now but we we talk about um the suspension of disbelief Mm -hmm. 
And I think this piece does it beautifully because I found myself when you were trying to, you know, open the the door and she's she's almost done with the cigarettes. Like I was like on the edge of my seat, like, oh my God, like yeah. what is going on? And I found myself going with you on all these like these places that you go to like the bar. I saw everything and I feel like you do a really good job here at like entering scenes, exiting scenes, and it's you it's just beautifully done. Like I don't even notice I'm exiting or entering. Like I just go with it. Thank you. Yeah. Um it's it it looks easy, but it's really not. Yeah, I can, I mean, <laughs> I can imagine. It takes a very long time. Yeah. Um but uh one of my favorite scenes that I wrote about is the bar scene. Mm-hmm. Uh when I'm having the conversation with uh Israel. Mm-hmm. And you know, when when I look back on it now, the conversation that they were having is is on a topic that I that I had no idea that that this this existed on femicide mm-hmm. in Mexico, and this semester I'm actually I'm doing my my capstone thesis on femicide, and and, and it's not because of of that conversation that happened that night. It's just uh, one of my professors she she uh, she asked me if I wanted to be a research assistant. And I said, I, I always say yeah to everything. So I said, yeah. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> Any opportunity, I'm Why always not? like, yeah. yeah. So, so she, uh, she, she took me on as a research assistant and she said we were going to be doing it on femicide. And that's when I realized that I had already heard about it mm. when I was in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel was Mexican and he was having a conversation with um, uh, Magdalena about it. Like she was asking like, oh, what's the deal with all these women that are being killed. And he was very like knowledgeable. Like he really like knew his, his stuff. So I was just kind of like eavesdropping, like listening, like, Oh, like, wow, this guy's really smart. And then we started talking about it. Um, and again, I had no idea that this was happening where I was like in Oaxaca and, and all these different parts of in Mexico. And then I came back to the United States, came back to New York to school. And then I had the opportunity to like learn about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I'm doing my thesis on that right now. Wow, that's yeah. a really important topic too, and it's it really is huge yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I really love that part in your piece where you kind of finally put the pen down and and socialize and have this conversation after the alcohol kind of gives you a little push. Um, yeah, <laughs> and the conversation that you have with Israel really caught my attention. Specifically, the line that said that. We both agreed that we were pursuing dangerous careers and fell silent as we slowly sipped our mezcla. Not for the taste, but to feel the fire in our throats, as if it could somehow burn away the horrible words spoken. Was the conversation like really intense at this time? Yeah. How was it putting the pen down and turning your head from the paper in that moment? Well, it wasn't just a conversation that was intense. It was the whole the whole night the whole ambience the whole like we were at this really sketchy dive bar in Oaxaca surrounded by really sketchy people getting drunk <laughs> uh, not the smartest thing so i i put the pen down yes because i i wanted to like be a part of this conversation but also because i i wanted to be aware of my surroundings <laughs> Because once once this topic was brought up, I realized, oh, I'm not, 
not not that it's not really a, a safe place, but I realized I need to be smart about yes about this. So I, I put my pen down. I started being aware of my surroundings. I started engaging in this conversation because it was in, uh, an important conversation. Um, and yes, it was intense. Uh, uh, like I said, everything about that night was very intense. The the subject is intense. Learning about it now is intense. Um, it's something that people really need to know about. You know, a lot of people don't know. When I tell them that I'm doing my thesis on femicide, they always ask me, "Well, what is femicide?" Mm. And for those of you that don't know what femicide is, is when a woman is killed, a woman, a girl or woman is killed because of her gender, because she's a female. And it, it's, it's, it's a huge problem in Latin America, yeah. you know? Um, and I think it's something that everyone needs to know about. Uh, people need to start paying attention. The Mexican government needs to acknowledge that this is happening. Um, it's a big problem. I absolutely agree. It's a very, very important topic, and I think that more people should be aware of that. So with that said, I would love to know, what do you want the listener to take away from this piece? Just that. That. <laughs> that, yeah. Mm. Uh, because it's a lighthearted piece about a pen and me and my girlfriend traveling, and there's this very important issue that that I had no idea existed and and somewhere in that piece when I was writing it like I subconsciously wrote about it and then it then I realized that it was much bigger than 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 just that night mm -hmm. you know yeah. just mm -hmm. sitting just with like friends and like yeah having a drink and discussing it it's it's something that, like I said, people really need to like start paying attention. People need to discuss this and take action. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you travel to all these different places, and as beautiful as they are, you don't really, as much as you try to engage in the culture, you don't really know what what happens, what's happening once you leave there. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. the, these people are real. They they have lives, and you go, you spend your 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 money buying cheap cervezas and tacos yeah. and then you have your fun and then you leave but that that problem is still there it, it exists yeah. you right. know Absolutely. like like um like maoli was saying about the the racism some people don't believe that it exists but it does you know yeah. the world is a big place and there's a lot of things happening and people need to open their eyes and Right. And like now talking about these things don't make the issue and the problem go away. Like you have to talk about it. So that's really good. And I really like in your piece that this is the conversation that actually makes you turn and like listen. Like it just makes you stop everything else and listen. I think that's the attitude that we need more people to have when it comes to these social issues. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Stop and listen. Yeah. Put, drop whatever you have and just listen. Yeah. yeah. Because a lot of the time conversations like that make people uncomfortable mm -hmm. and a lot of the time when that's brought up it's when they pick up their pen and they they continue exactly. that's that's the cue yeah you know what i mean but this kind of opens the door to you know put the pen down take a second to realize what is calling the attention what needs more attention in the world mm -hmm. so i want to thank you so much sam for this piece. thank you thank, thank you. you for that subtle um underlying message that you really brought forth really well thank you yeah thank you <laughs>
So that's all we have for tonight. We just want to say thank you to our writers today, to our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developer, everyone. There's a lot of people behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. You can find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com and or tune in on Radio 568. A very special thank you to our audience for joining us. We hope you love these stories as much as we did, and it was a joy to bring them to you. Good night.